0: Welcome to Reviving Virtue, a podcast where we face the urgent challenges of today's world by exploring the crucial role of uncovering, together, a coherent moral narrative for our time. I'm your host, Jeffrey Anthony, on a quest to tackle liberalism's quandary and pave the way towards a more unified society. Join me on this journey as we delve into ethics, philosophy, and community building, seeking to create a common understanding that fosters human flourishing and harmony. Welcome to Reviving Virtue. Welcome to the first podcast of Reviving Virtue. In this podcast, we will explore the challenges and potential of liberalism and democracy in forging a coherent moral narrative for our time. we will examine the perspectives of philosophers, political theorists, poets, artists, musicians, politicians, and others on the issues liberalism faces and the possible paths towards a fostering harmony and human flourishing. Now, I have looked at approaching this project from many different angles, and I decided to start off By looking at a book written in 1927 by the great American pragmatist philosopher John Dewey called The Public and Its Problems. In The Public and Its Problems, Dewey investigates the obstacles confronting modern democracies as they strive to engage their citizens and tackle intricate social matters. He probes the essence of the public, the significance of communication in cultivating democratic involvement, and the necessity of adopting deliberate, methodical, and reflective strategies for comprehending and addressing social and political challenges. Furthermore, Dewey emphasizes the vital role of critical thinking in navigating the complexities of social and political dilemmas. Throughout this initial phase of Vibing Virtue, aptly named the Dewey series, each episode will focus on one chapter of the public and its problems. We will dissect Dewey's core concept and scrutinize their applicability and consequences in today's world. Key topics of discussion will include the interplay between facts and their meanings, the significance of method in fostering understanding, and the essential role of an informed and engaged public in sustaining a thriving democracy. So let's do a a brief background on Dewey. Dewey was born on October 20th, 1859, in Burlington, Vermont, the son of a local grocer. He grew up in the middle class family that valued education. He attended the University of Vermont, where he was introduced to philosophy and developed a keen interest in the subject. After graduating in 1879, Dewey taught high school for a few years before pursuing further studies in philosophy at John Hopkins University, where he got his PhD studying under Charles Sanders Pierce, an American philosopher, a logician, who was one of the founders of American pragmatism. Dewey's career as a philosopher and educator spanned over six decades, during which he made significant contributions to the various fields, including education, psychology, and social and political philosophy. He authored more than 40 books and numerous articles, which shaped the development of American philosophy and education. So that's just a little bit about John Dewey. I say let's get into the first chapter of The Public and Its Problems. I think we will start by just reading the opening paragraph, which takes up almost all of the first page. It's richly packed, with many of the themes and ideas Dewey will expand upon in the book and will provide a good jumping-off point to highlight some of these ideas up front to guide and inform the discussion as we progress through this and upcoming episodes. So, quoting John Dewey from the very beginning of the book, if one wishes to realize the distance which may lie between facts and the meaning of facts, let one go to the field of social discussion Many persons seem to suppose that facts carry their meaning along with themselves on their face, accumulate enough of them, and their interpretation stares out at you. The development of physical science is thought to confirm the idea. But the power of physical facts to coerce belief does not reside in the bare phenomena. It proceeds from method, from the technique of research and calculation. No one is ever forced by just the collection of facts to accept a particular theory of their meaning, so long as one retains intact some other doctrine by which he can marshal them. Only when the facts are allowed free play for the suggestion of new points of view and any significant conversion of conviction as to meaning possible. Take away from physical science its laboratory apparatuses and its mathematical technique, and the human imagination might run wild in its theories of interpretation, even if we suppose the brute facts to remain the same. Wow, that's a lot to unpack here, and I feel like many of these themes resonate deeply with our current time. Let's start with the opening sentence. If one wishes to realize the distance which may lie between facts and the meaning of facts, let one go to the field of social discussion. John Dewey is articulating the relationship between facts and their meaning, particularly in the context of our social milieu. This may immediately conjure up memories of our recent and ongoing debate centered around the caustic phrase, fake news. And what is interesting about this is that Dewey was pointing out in the very first sentence in a book written almost 100 years ago, the public's uneased, or you could say, unwillingness to accept a particular method of meaning-making. What do I mean by this? Let's consider the next few sentences. Quoting Dewey, Many persons seem to suppose that facts carry their meaning along with themselves on their face. Accumulate enough of them, and their interpretation stares out at you. The development of physical science is thought to confirm the idea. But the power of physical facts to coerce belief does not reside in the bare phenomena. It proceeds from method, from the technique of research and calculation. Here, Dewey points out that there is often a significant gap between the facts themselves and the meaning or interpretation people derive from them. Many people believe that facts are self-evident and that accumulating enough of them will lead to a clear understanding. This belief is thought to be confirmed by the development of physical science. People are not compelled to accept a particular interpretation of facts as long as they have another belief system that can organize and make sense of them. Dewey suggests that when... Facts are allowed to freely suggest new perspectives that any significant change in understanding can occur. Now, William James, prominent American pragmatist and considered one of the three founders of the tradition, along with Dewey and Pierce, famously said, The true is the name of whatever proves itself to be good in the way of belief. And good too for definite, assignable reasons. And Richard Rorty, in his book Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature, wrote, Truth cannot be out there cannot exist independently of the human mind, because sentences cannot so exist, or be out there. The world is out there, but descriptions of the world are not. Only descriptions of the world can be true or false. The world on its own, unaided by the describing activities of humans, cannot. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but I'm doing this intentionally. I want to foreshadow some of the themes we'll be exploring through the works of James and Rorty in the future podcasts, and a host of other ideas we're going to weave into this story that we're trying to build here. Exactly what is the nature of meaning-making, what is truth, and what is the correspondence theory of truth? Put a pin in that for several months, because it's going to take that long for us to get there. However, to bring us back to today, and on point with Dewey in his first chapter of The Public and Its Problems, Dewey argues that the power of physical facts to force a particular belief does not come from the facts themselves, but from the method and technique used in research and calculation. This idea of method and technique is crucial to understanding where so much confusion, incoherence, and misunderstanding arise in our modern predicament. Quoting Dewey again, no one is ever forced by just a collection of facts to accept a particular theory of their meaning, so long as one retains intact some other doctrine by which he can marshal them. Only when the facts are allowed free play for the suggestion of new points of view is any significant conversion of conviction as to meaning possible. Take away from physical science its laboratory apparatus and its mathematical technique and the human imagination might run wild in its theories and interpretation even if we suppose the brute facts to remain the same. What is Dewey saying here in this concluding part of his opening paragraph? I interpret this to mean that facts alone cannot compel someone to accept a particular interpretation or theory. People can maintain their existing beliefs as long as they have a framework that can organize and make sense of the facts and the importance of open-mindedness. As Dewey implies, that only when the facts are allowed to freely suggest new perspectives can any significant change in understanding occur. This highlights the need for an open-minded approach to the process of meaning-making. Also critical to this is Dewey's focus on method and technique in understanding facts. Using the example of physical science, without its laboratory apparatus and mathematical techniques, human imagination might run wild, creating various interpretations even if the facts remain the same. This further emphasizes the significance of method and technique in guiding our understanding and the interpretation of what we call facts. Now, when I first read this, I was struck with this question Who should be open minded, though? Is Dewey saying that people who are confronted with scientific facts from an alien method, in scare quotes, there should be open, or should the scientists with their alien methods be open to the particular contingent belief systems of people who do not necessarily acknowledge the validity? of these scientific methods. Taking Dewey's pragmatism into account, his pragmatist perspective emphasizes the importance of open-mindedness for both parties, people who are confronted with the scientific facts and the scientists who present them. While he acknowledges that individuals may not be compelled to accept scientific facts if they have their own belief system or frameworks, he also emphasizes the importance of allowing facts to suggest new perspectives and being open to different ways of understanding the world. In this context, both scientists and non-scientists should be open to considering alternative perspectives and engaging in a dialogue that might lead to a better understanding of the world and the issue at hand. This approach aligns with the pragmatist's emphasis on the practical application of ideas and the continuous improvement of human knowledge through open inquiry and critical thinking. What's important is not that one method is better than another, but rather that dialogue and interactive meaning-making process, which takes in these points of view and iteratively applies them to daily life. This is critical. We're going to take a short pause here, step back. I just laid a whole bunch on you here. So let's try to process and review some of the terms I've introduced thus far. So pragmatism is a term I have introduced. That word is not used in the book, but Dewey is a pragmatist and comes from the pragmatist tradition, since he's a founding member of the pragmatist. And what is pragmatism? It's a philosophical movement that emphasizes the practical application of ideas, the testing of beliefs through experience, and the continuous improvement of human knowledge. We will be working within the pragmatist framework often through the evolution of this podcast. And as such, it will will provide much more detailed analysis of its foundation and, and precepts as we move on. Now, the correspondence theory of truth. So a traditional philosophical theory of truth, which holds that a statement or belief is true if it corresponds to an objective reality outside of just our subjective experience with the world. I can tell you that this one concept is a massive concept in philosophy and between philosophers. There are those who say that, of course, there's an objective truth and that what we say and how we describe something means how it describes the world the objective world irregardless of our experience in it it should exist out there and then there's people like rorty and it's not just rorty lots of people who think lots of philosophers very smart people or i guess anyways i'm getting off the tangent there's lots of people who say that that's just not that's just ridiculous we can't have any way of acknowledging whether something is objectively true without the subjective experience of it so uh pragmatist and John Dewey don't agree with that idea of a correspondence theory of truth. Coherence theory of truth, an alternative philosophical theory of truth that holds that a statement or belief is true if it coherently fits within a broader set of beliefs or systems for understanding. Now this is critical to understand and I believe is critical for us to understand the modernity and our in trying to understand each other facts versus meaning. The distinction Dewey highlights between the objective facts or data of the world and the interpretations or meanings people derive from them, emphasizing that meaning is shaped by the methods and techniques to use in research and calculation. And then open-mindedness. I'm sure we've heard that a million times, but open-mindedness is a key aspect of pragmatism, and it encourages individuals to be receptive to new perspectives and ideas and experiences in order to improve their understanding of the world and adapt to changing circumstances. This really resonates with me and how I've approached life thus far, and I think it's a quality that should be instilled and become a virtue in our culture. As we move through the next few pages, Dewey illustrates the different conceptions of the state and how people view it in various relations, one that simply exists to create the space for free exchange of economic interests, free associations among individuals, and then there's the view that the state should exist to distribute resources equitably or another one in which some view the state as simply oppressive. Dewey goes through several different ideas that are all familiar to us in modern times because it pretty much comprises all the things we argue about incessantly. Where are we in the book right now? So we're now on page 12, and Dewey brings into discussion the economic concept of externalities. Now, if any of our listeners have taken an intro economics course, I'm pretty sure that you're familiar with this concept as it's a, part of the, it's a foundation of economics. Let's see what Dewey does with this here. So I'm quoting Dewey. We must in any case start from acts which are performed, not from hypothetical causes for those acts, and consider their consequences. We must also introduce intelligence or the observation of consequences as consequences that is in connection with the acts from which they proceed. I want to pause here again for a moment. As Dewey uses the word intelligence in a way that differs from our modern usage, in Dewey's work, intelligence is about observing the consequences of our actions and understanding the relationships between these actions and their outcomes. It's about learning from this understanding and adapting our behavior accordingly. So this is how Dewey uses the word intelligence. I don't want you to think of how we use intelligence. And I'm realizing as I'm going through this that I haven't explained externalities too well. Welcome to episode one of my first podcast. So let me, let me explain. An externality is when, for example, let's say you go to buy a car. So you go to the dealership and you buy a car. The way you view it, and most people view it, is that you have engaged in a private economic exchange between you and the dealership. You gave them money or you signed a promissory note and they gave you a car. The externality from that is, you can argue, and many do, is the pollution that is created from that car. Now, your one car alone is not going to do much harm. But in aggregate, we have created some issues here in late modernity, with the warming of the atmosphere due to the excess carbon and, and burning of carbon molecules. So that's an externality because I was not part of that exchange between you and the car dealership, but that is affecting my life because of the, the, the changing weather patterns that are associated with that. There's a million other externalities. Almost every exchange has an externality involved somewhere within the production chain or when, when you actually buy it. How did you come up with the, mo- with the money? That's another thing, like the financing. So, getting back on track with my script, let's go back to the intelligence. This is what we were talking about. This unique perspective on, on intelligence is deeply rooted in Dewey's pragmatist philosophy, which emphasizes the practical application of ideas and the continuous improvement of human knowledge. By being open minded, engaging in critical thinking, and learning from diverse perspectives, we can harness our intelligence to navigate the complexities of the world and create meaningful solutions to the challenges we face. So as we discuss Dewey's work, it's essential to keep in mind this broader understanding of intelligence as an active, adaptive, and practical process. All right, back to the rest of the passage. This is a long one. So let's get your focus caps on. Here we go. Quoting Dewey, since we must introduce it, it is better to do so knowingly than it is to smuggle it in a way which deceives not only the customs officer, the reader, but ourselves as well. We take, then, our point of departure from the objective fact that human acts have consequences upon others, that some of these consequences are perceived, and that their perception leads to subsequent effort to control action so as to secure some consequences and avoid others. Following this clue, which he spells C-L-E-W, we are led to remark that the consequences are of two kinds, those which affect the person's directly engaged in the transaction, and those which affect others beyond those immediate concerned, In this distinction, we find the germ of the distinction between the private and the public. When indirect consequences are recognized and there is effort to regulate them, something having the traits of a state come into existence. When the consequences of an action are confined or thought to be confined, mainly to the persons directly engaged in it, the transaction is a private one. So, when a and b, carry on a conversation, together, the action is a transaction, both concerned in it. Its results pass, as it were, across from one to the other. One or the other may be helped or harmed thereby. But presumably, the consequences of advantage and injury do not extend beyond a and b. The activity lies between them. It is private. Yet, if it is found that the consequences of conversation extend beyond the two directly concerned, that they affect the welfare of many others, the act acquires a public capacity, whether the conversation be carried on by a king and his prime ministers, or by Catiline and the fellow conspirators, or by merchants planning to monopolize a market. Okay, Dewey is bringing in the distinction between private acts and public acts, and this is critical to understanding his conception of the public. Before we delve into this, let's first clarify the difference between individual and social. As Dewey explores it in the next part of his work, Dewey states the distinction between private and public is thus in no sense equivalent to the distinction between individual and social, even if we suppose that the later distinction has a definite meaning. Many private acts are social. Their consequences contribute to the welfare of the community or affect its statuses and prospects. In the broad sense, any transaction deliberately carried on between two or more persons is social in quality. It is a form of associated behavior, and its consequences may influence further associations. A man may serve others, even in the community at large, in carrying out a private business. To some extent, it is true, as Adam Smith asserted, that our breakfast table is better supplied by the convergent outcomes of activities of farmers, grocers, and butchers carrying on their private affairs with a view to private profit than it would be if we were served on the basis of a philanthropy or public spirit. Communities have been supplied with works of art, with scientific discoveries because of the personal delight found by private persons in engaging in these activities. There are private philanthropists who act so that needy persons or the community as a whole profit by the endowment of libraries, hospitals, and educational institutions. In short, private acts may be socially valuable both by indirect consequences and by direct intention. Now, Dewey here is explaining that the distinction between private and public is not equivalent to the distinction between individual and social. Even if we assume that the latter distinction has a definite meaning, many private acts can indeed be social, and their consequences contribute to the welfare of the community or affect its status and prospects. In a broader sense, any transaction deliberately carried out between two or more people is social in nature. It's a form of associated behavior and its consequences may influence further associations. So Dewey emphasizes that a person can serve others, even the community at large, through private actions. Now, understanding this distinction of social in the context of public and private acts is crucial as Dewey is building a foundation for his analysis of the public, its interest, and its role in shaping the social fabric. By recognizing that private acts can have social consequences, we can better appreciate the complexity of the relationship between individual actions and their impact on the broader community. This perspective enables us to explore the role of the public in addressing and managing these consequences, ultimately shaping the way society functions and evolves. We now see the concept of obligations arising from Dewey's framing by emphasizing the distinction between public and private acts and their social consequences. By acknowledging that private acts can have social impacts on the broader community, it illustrates the hidden responsibilities we have towards others, even when our actions seem purely private in nature. Understanding this conception of the relationship between individual actions and their influence on the community helps us appreciate the role of the public in addressing and managing these consequences. And I believe helps elevate a current of disagreement in our modern time. In the next few pages, Dewey highlights various reactions from individuals and groups to the concept of obligations to the social, without explicitly using the term libertarian. However, when we think of modern libertarians, these are often people who struggle to conceptualize the idea that private acts can have social impacts on the broader community, and that there are hidden responsibilities we have towards others. Dewey, however, reinforces the idea that the public cannot be equated with the socially useful or beneficial, and that private acts can have both positive and negative consequences on society. Dewey's argument serves as a reminder that we should not hastily associate the community and its interests with the state or the politically organized community. This distinction prompts us to consider the proposition that the line between private and public should be drawn based on the extent and scope of the consequences of the acts that are significant enough to require control, whether through inhibition or promotion. Now, Dewey the historical origins of legal institutions and how they shape our modern understanding of the public. In the past, conflicts and disputes were often handled privately between the involved parties, and these quarrels could escalate into long-lasting feuds involving entire families and communities. The consequences of these disputes, however, did not remain confined to the individuals directly involved. They impacted a larger group of people, eventually giving rise to the concept of the public. I'm going to quote, again, from Dewey, Legal institutions derived from an earlier period when the right of self-help obtained. If a person was harmed, it was strictly up to him what he should do to get even. Injuring another and exacting a penalty for an injury received were private transactions. They were the affairs of those directly concerned and nobody else's direct business, but the injured party obtained readily the help of friends and relatives, and the aggressors did likewise. Hence, consequences of the quarrel did not remain confined to those immediately concerned. Feuds ensued, and the blood quarrel might implicate large numbers and endure for generations. The recognition of this extensive and lasting embroilment and the harm wrought by it to whole families brought a public into existence. The transaction ceased to concern only the immediate parties to it. Those indirectly affected formed a public which took steps to conserve its interest by instituting compositions and other means of pacification to localize the trouble. It's really fascinating how he brings the concept of the public in from this historical perspective. In this context, Dewey demonstrates that the public emerged as a way to manage and mitigate the indirect consequences of these conflicts. By recognizing that such disputes had far-reaching effects on society, legal institutions were established to provide a more organized and effective means of resolving conflicts and maintaining social order. By recognizing that such disputes have far-reaching effects on society, legal institutions were established to provide a more organized and effective means of resolving conflicts and maintaining social order. This historical perspective helps our listeners better understand the roots of the public and its role in addressing the wider consequences of individual actions within a community. Okay, we are moving towards the end of this first chapter. Thanks for hanging in with me for so long. So Dewey, when discussing the many contradictory theories of the state, says that all spring from a root of a shared error, the taking of causal agency instead of consequences as the heart of the problem. Dewey's main argument is that we should focus on understanding the consequences of individual actions and their impact on the broader community, rather than searching for hypothetical causes behind those actions. By refocusing our attention on the consequences and how they relate to the actions that produce them, we gain a better understanding of the public's role in managing and addressing these consequences. This approach, grounded in pragmatism and the observation of human behavior, allows for a more coherent and effective analysis of the nature of the public and its responsibilities. Modern libertarians still get confused on this point, as they still think it in terms of causal forces. The conclusion they draw is that the state and the public is a fiction, a mask for private desires, for power and position, and that also society itself has been reduced to an aggregate of unrelated wants and wills. As such, and this will sound familiar to modern ears, The state is conceived as either sheer oppression born of arbitrary power and sustained in fraud, or as a pooling of forces of individual men into a massive force which single persons are unable to resist. The pooling being a measure of desperation, its sole alternative is a conflict with all which generates a life that is helpless and brutish. Thus, the state appears as either a monster to be destroyed or as a leviathan to be cherished. In short, Under the influence of the fallacy that the problem of the state concerns causal forces, individualism as an ism, as a philosophy, has been generated. And now to quote Dewey at length here. He is savage when it comes to dismantling the modern individual, especially the conception of the self here in the United States, and also highlights the concept of consciousness being distributed outside the constituted self and inheres in objects and foreshadows what scientists will learn 90 years later, about the interrelated consciousness of of a forest. Go and Google, do trees talk to each other? To read this incredible research, now onto the savage Dewey quote. While the doctrine is false, it sets out from a fact. Wants, choices, and purposes have their locus and single beings. Behavior which manifests desire, intent, and resolution proceeds from them in their singularity. But only intellectual laziness leads us to conclude that since the form of thought and decision is individual, their content, their subject matter is also something purely personal. Even if consciousness were the wholly private matter that the individualistic tradition in philosophy and psychology supposes it to be, it would still be true that consciousness is of objects, not of itself. Association in the sense of connection and combination is a law of everything known to exist. Singular things act, but they act together. Nothing has been discovered which acts in entire isolation. The action of everything is along with the action of other things. The along with is of such a kind that the behavior of each is modified by its connection with others. There are trees which can grow only in a forest of many plants, can successfully germinate and develop only under conditions furnished by the presence of other plants. Reproduction of kind is dependent upon the activities of insects which bring about fertilization. The life history of an animal cell is conditioned upon connection with what other cells are doing. Electrons, atoms, and molecules exemplify the omnipresence of a conjoint behavior. This is an incredible passage. It just, it's just remarkable to me reading this. And it was a hundred years ago when he wrote this. I've wondered if this insight that he's brought to us just in this one paragraph, not, but it's not just this one paragraph In, in his volumes of writing. A lot of his stuff has been lost or just, it's not so much lost. Of course, it's not lost. We have the Dewey Center and there's people talk about Dewey, but Dewey and his ideas are not part of our, of our modern lexicon. His ideas do not, are not fluent for us today. And, and part of me wonders because what he's saying here really gets at the heart of why we have so many problems here in the United States and in the globe. Because if we thought this way, the way we would be dealing with our problems in the public today would be completely different than what we're doing right now. We're almost at the end of our first episode. I want to skip ahead to a critical portion of this chapter where Dewey writes, The state is the organization of the public affected through officials for the protection of the interests shared by its members. But what the public may be, what the officials are, how adequately they perform their function, are things we have to go to history to discover. Nevertheless, our conception gives a criterion for determining how good a particular state is, namely, the degree of organization of the public which is attained and the degree in which its officers are so constituted as to perform their function of caring for public interests. But there is no a priori rule which can be laid down and by which when it is followed, a good state will be brought into existence. In no two ages or places is there the same public. Conditions makes the consequences of associated action and the knowledge of them different. In addition, the means by which a public can determine the government to serve its interests vary. Only formally can we say what the best state could be. In concrete fact, in actual and concrete organization in structure, there is no form of state which can be said to be the best, not at least till history is ended, and one can survey all its varied forms. The formation of states must be an experimental process. I'm just pausing here because this is an incredible, it's an incredible paragraph. Dewey's argument highlights the significance of contingent circumstances and the rejection of permanent atemporal universals dictating how people should behave, act, and form a community. Neglecting the local, contingent needs of your community is irresponsible. Moreover, this illustrates the incoherence of attempting to rely on unchanging organizational laws such as the U.S. Constitution as a permanent, unalterable document that should never be reinterpreted for the current contingent circumstances that we move through today. This issue is currently relevant in America, where radical conservatives insist that the Constitution, written 200 years ago, should be interpreted as it would have been by people alive at that time, and apply that understanding to our present-day experiences. Dewey warns that this approach is both dangerous and incoherent. Additionally, I see modern conservatives inverting the idea of coercion and state power by insisting on specific conceptions of social arrangement that disproportionately benefits a particular subsection of our society. This inversion imposes a coercive, top-down power dynamic brought on by a minority upon the majority of citizens, ensuring the perpetuation of social relations that maintain their interpretation of the good life and their societal status at the very real cost to everyone else. In my view, the central conflict of our time revolves around the inversion of this coerciveness propagated through our public institutions at the behest of a small minority asserting private claims. This brings me to my central theme of my own work and my own research, agency, creativity, and courage. By understanding Dewey's assertion that there is no a priori rule which can be laid down and by which when it is followed a good state will be brought into existence, and that in no two ages or places is there the same public, we can recognize that conserving a specific articulation of social relations without considering our current social needs and desires undermines agency creativity, and courage, and instead replaces them with powerlessness, conformity, and cowardice. This insight has inspired me to create this podcast, exploring ideas and conceptions of liberalism, the state, community, personhood, and the constitution of the self in late modernity. I aim to understand what it means today in our time to articulate a shared conception of the good life and how we can reinstate an ethic that honors our agency, creativity, and the courage required for the daily work, of reproducing our social relations that respect and value each individual while creating the conditions for everyone to flourish in our community. The state of things as they exist today is not just an accident of chaotic historical contingencies, but rather an intentional project designed to maintain a specific social order. Dewey knew this, and in the closing pages of this chapter states that the process of achieving an organized state is experimental and must be continually revisited in response to changing conditions. Political philosophy and science can help guide this experimentation, enabling us to learn from our mistakes and build on our successes. Dewey asserts that the belief in political fixity, or the sanctity of a particular form of state, is a stumbling block for orderly and directed change. It is an invitation for revolt and revolution, and I say it's cowardly. How dare we Dewey's vision encourages us to embrace a method that takes into account the interrelations of observable actions and their results. As we navigate the complexities of today's society, we should draw upon his insights to foster an ethic of agency, creativity, and courage. This approach calls for a continuous reassessment of our social and political structures, ensuring they remain responsive to the ever-evolving needs and desires of the public. Thank you. And we will continue next Tuesday with chapter two of The Public and Its Problems. My plan is to release a new episode every Tuesday. This may be a bit ambitious as a lot of work goes into each one of these episodes. At the closing of this first podcast, I would like to mention that in the show notes will be resources to the topics I discussed here. I'll have links to everything and a link to my brand new Patreon page. And there'll be a link to my Substack, And I'll also be releasing the video of these recordings on the YouTube channel. So thank you, be well, see you next week for chapter two.